0: members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly zoom hangouts with mike here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on the humanist report enjoy the show
1: i really uh, hope in the next several days as we come together as a republican caucus that we're able to resolve that so that we go unified to the house floor and deliver a speaker i hope you don't take this personally but do you guys have any idea how clownish you look well, you know, Jake, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that um, Congress is a light like high school, but even more so. So um, hopefully we'll get past this. And, um, you know, I certainly have been part of the governing majority, and
2: uh, I'm going to stay part of that and look forward to those who are on the fringes hopefully coming together so that we can get uh, a speaker. I said that to Congressman Wilmack
0: last week, high school, and he said that that's an insult to high school students. It's more like junior high. Congressman Turner, Chairman Turner, yeah. good to see
1: you. I, ho- I hope you guys pick Thanks. a speaker sometime soon. Great. Thanks, Jake. You just watched CNN's Jake Tapper ask Republicans the question that we all want to ask. But to be fair, Republicans have absolutely no self-awareness whatsoever, so no, they don't have any idea how clownish they look, nor would they care if they did. But here's where we're at with regards to the Speaker race. Jim Jordan is officially out, and nine new Republicans have stepped up to be Speaker. Now, before we get to the updated race, let's talk about what happened last week when Jim Jordan's bid to be Speaker went down in flames. So on Friday, they held a third-floor vote on his Speakership, and he predictably lost by an even larger margin, with 25 Republicans voting against him this time. Now, remember, 20 Republicans voted against him the first time, and in the second round, 22 voted against him, so it was clear that the momentum was not going in the direction that he wanted, and when you consider the intimidation and the literal death threats that Republicans received for opposing him, well, needless to say, they were pretty much over Jim Jordan at that point, which all culminated in his Speakership officially going down in flames during a secret vote. But in a last-ditch effort to save Jordan's Speakership bid, Matt Gates and the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy offered to be martyrs in a desperate attempt to appease the pro-McCarthy side, writing in a saying, Timonious joint statement quote the recent passage of the motion to vacate the speaker has caused rancor hurt feelings and acrimony in the House Republican conference while we stand by our actions it is our goal to proceed forward with our colleagues our teammates our fellow republicans in a manner that embraces reconciliation it has been suggested that the conference cannot move forward until there are consequences for each of us while we violated no rule of either the house or republican conference we understand some in the conference wish to punish us. Now they go on to propose the following. If the holdouts who refuse to vote for speaker-designate Jordan would be willing to vote with the team and elect him the 56th speaker, we are prepared to accept censure, suspension, or removal from the conference to accomplish this objective how noble of them. Now, a day later, Republican Tom McClintock responded with a hilariously sarcastic letter of his own, which reads, Your letter of October 20th, which you graciously offered to martyr yourselves as long as you get your way, is perhaps the most selfless act in American history. I was certain that our Republican colleagues who refused to vote with a Republican majority would have been inspired by your stirring example of party discipline and loyalty to vote with the team as you so eloquently phrased it. We should have been moved by your willingness to suffer Censure, suspension or removal from the conference to enforce your personal preferences on the overwhelming majority of your unenlightened colleagues. We should have appreciated how you and 206 House Democrats saved us from a Republican speaker. We truly don't deserve you, so Betty. But your sacrifice is not in vain. You have succeeded in replacing the outdated concept of majority rule with an exciting new standard that a speaker must be elected with 98.2% of the Republican conference. Someday a messiah will be born unto us, who can achieve this miraculous threshold. And on that day, your judgment will be vindicated and you will be hailed as the geniuses that you are. Now it goes on, but he signs it as your secret admirer. And he also attaches a resolution condemning the motion to vacate McCarthy. In other words, they're getting along really well. Now, after Jordan lost the second vote and talks to temporarily empower McHenry started to gain steam, Marjorie Greene responded to that and she went on a bit of a rant to the press where she actually took some shots at her friend Matt Gates without naming him of course.
3: This conference is absolutely broken and the reason why we're broken is because Republicans worked with Democrats and put us here. Um, it's outrageous. We have, we have serious issues happening in our country. Terrorists have come across our border. War is breaking out in Israel. War is continuing continuing in Ukraine. The economy is getting worse and worse, and inflation is crushing everyone's ability to afford to live. Um, This is the most disappointing thing, and it has it has to change.
1: So sad. Her frustration there is palpable. Now I find that rant there funny because she's virtue signaling about all of these issues that she supposedly cares about when she spends 99.9% of her time doing the same grandstanding that she's denouncing right there. In the same way that those eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy are grandstanding virtue signaling. She does that most of the time. But what's funny is that the only reason why she decided to not join them and grandstand with them is because she sucked up to McCarthy to enhance her own power. So she still is supporting McCarthy and didn't go along with them for opportunistic reasons. She wanted a good committee seat, and that's why she didn't do what they did. Otherwise, she'd be going right along with them. So you see, there's a lot of frustration over the whole Jim Jordan kerfuffle and the Bid to oust McCarthy still. But the question is, uh, what now? What do we do going forward? What's going to happen going forward? And the answer is, who the hell knows? But there are nine new Republicans who decided to throw their hats in the ring, including House Majority Whip Tom Emmer. Now, he isn't necessarily the front runner, but he is probably the most notable speaker candidate simply because he has the most experience and the most rapport with other GOP members. Now, on top of that, there is House GOP Conference Vice Chairman Mike Johnson. There's Byron Donalds. There's also Kevin Hearn, Jack Bergman, Austin Scott, Pete Sessions, Dan Muser, and Gary Palmer. Now, I'm pretty confident that you haven't heard of any of these folks, uh, but here's what you need to know about them. As Jake Sherman of Punchbowl News points out, with the exception of Tom Emmer and Austin Scott, All of these new Republican speaker candidates are election deniers that voted against the certification of the 2020 election. Also, all of them, with the exception of Tom Emmer, voted against gay marriage in 2022. That's when that vote took place. Now, also, you can see their stances on Ukraine aid, raising the debt ceiling, and the 47-day funding bill that McCarthy negotiated to avoid a government shutdown that ultimately led to his demise. And to be clear, they're all terrible candidates. I'll link you to a thread by Melanie DiRigo, where she kind of breaks down all of their donors and conflicts of interest. But having said that, though, out of all of them, Tom Emmer is the most moderate by far, which, of course, means he has absolutely no fucking chance of winning. In fact, HuffPost reports that Trump sycophants immediately tried to derail his campaign, with Carrie Lake's advisor calling him Nancy Pelosi in a suit and Laura Loomer saying that he's essentially a Democrat, which is hilarious. So, I mean, if you're Tom Emmer and you're qualified to be speaker, but you haven't shown sufficient loyalty to Daddy Trump, What do you do? Have you burned that bridge? Well, no, you obviously have to pucker up and kiss Trump's ass. And that's exactly what he's doing. As Politico reports, Emmer World is pushing back hard on the Whisper campaign against him, and his allies have a retort for every charge, from the fact that Emmer supported both of Trump's presidential bids, to one allies insistence that he's never heard him say a negative thing about Trump, to the autographed photo of the two of them that Emmer keeps in his office. This is so pathetic. Rather, they say, the entire conflict has been concocted by his foes in the House who have grievances that have nothing to do with Trump. They point to Representative Jim Banks, who narrowly lost the contentious whip race last year, even after... After many MAGA World figures weighed in against Emmer, and to allies of conference chair Lee Stefanik, whose orbit has also clashed with Emmer's, dating back to when the two sparred over her push for more women campaign recruits. The issue for Emmer is that narratives can be hard to change, particularly if Trump himself is buying them. One Emmer critic predicted there will be at least 10 hard no's ready to oppose him in a floor vote. And if that's true, 10 no's is enough to sink his speakership bid so even though he kind of has the most momentum at least he's getting the most media coverage again i don't necessarily want to call him the front runner but he is the most notable person running currently and it already looks really bad for him but i mean if he can't convince trump's loyalists that he's sufficiently loyal to daddy trump it doesn't look like he's going to be able to become speaker now he's not just trying to convince them by pushing back point by point against all of the contentions that they have with him namely him being not loyal enough to trump but he's also putting in the work with trump himself so he is groveling directly to trump and trump talked about this when he was asked whether or not he would endorse emmer well,
4: i think he's my biggest fan now because he told me yesterday and he told me i biggest fan so i don't know about that
2: uh well we're looking at a lot of people and You know, I'm sort of trying
4: to stay out of
2: that as much as possible, but they'll get it straightened out. But no, I've always gotten along with him and uh, I get along with all of them. Really, A lot of good people. We have a lot of
1: great people. (laughs) Embarrassing. Just embarrassing. Now, I'm sure that Trump is embellishing. I'm sure that Tom Emmer didn't call him and say, I'm your biggest fan. But still, just to call Trump and grovel, that is humiliating. But I mean, if you want to be Speaker, this is what you've got to do. You've got to sacrifice your human dignity for Daddy Trump. And as you saw, all of that ass kissing still might not pay off because Trump did not endorse him. He's like, yeah, there's there's plenty of candidates that are good. So he's humiliating himself, possibly, probably for nothing. Now, the only other name that you've probably heard of from that list of nine is Byron Donalds, but it's hard to imagine that he's going to get the votes as well, because as AOC explained in an interview with Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC, I mean, the dude just got into Congress. So there's a couple of reasons why Republicans aren't going to be down for that. But I'll let her explain.
4: You mentioned your colleagues in the Congress. Before we run out of time, I've got to ask you about the House itself. You have no speaker right now. The Republicans defenestrated Kevin McCarthy. Couldn't agree on Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan. Now Byron Donalds, congressman from Florida, wants to be speaker. What do you make of him?
5: Um, I you know, he's only served one term
4: in the U.S. House of Representatives. He last thing that he did in an oversight
1: committee was attempt to submit falsified evidence uh, to an impeachment hearing. I think it helps to know where all the bathrooms are before you run for the U.S. House of Representatives (laughs) personally. And I think uh, it helps to have some real experience in one of the most complex uh, legislative bodies in the world before you try to run it. Now, to be clear, Republicans are not going to care at all about him attempting to submit falsified evidence. That's a non issue to them, at least. But. His lack of experience is probably going to be a sticking point. As she said, he served one full term. He's only in his second term right now. And this isn't going to sit well with Republicans because, A, they don't like the idea of being leapfrogged by some young rookie when they themselves want to be speaker and likely cannot be speaker. And B, he's going to get rolled in negotiations with Democrats because he's in over his head. I mean, it is difficult to navigate the House of Representatives, so it takes years to build up the ability to be competent, right? And even if you've been there for years like Jim Jordan, you still might not be competent. So how can he possibly become speaker? The fact that he is arrogant enough to run already is is awesome to me. But look, we're again in this situation where all of the new candidates in this situation that have emerged all seem very unlikely that they're going to be able to muster the support that they need to secure the gavel because each of these candidates are either too moderate or too extreme for either wing of the party. So that's going to be difficult to reconcile these differences. So the question is, who's going to be speaker in the end? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. But as I've said before, I am really enjoying the shenanigans. So take as much time as you need, Republicans, because this is very entertaining. And I I love talking about this. So please keep being idiots. Keep embarrassing yourselves. Uh, I I love every second of this. So keep it up.
4: Therefore, the Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives for the 118th Congress.
1: After a couple of long- hard weeks, House Republicans have decided to grab hold of Johnson and ride him all the way to the finish line. That's right, House Republicans have elected Mike Johnson of Louisiana as Speaker in a unanimous vote, meaning that a lot of them had to swallow their pride and come together. Which is surprising to me because when eight other Republicans announced their candidacy for Speaker, I really expected Johnson to slip through the cracks. But to my surprise, he stood tall in a field of limp competitors. Now, unfortunately, his lovely wife Kelly, who's also the co-host of his Christian podcast, Truth Be Told, couldn't make it, and he explains why she wasn't there for this special moment.
6: She spent the last uh, couple of weeks on her knees in prayer to the Lord, and um, she's a little worn
1: out. Damn, Kelly. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) Imagine, like, walking in on your spouse, and they're on their knees, and they're out of breath, and they're sweaty, and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm praying, honey. (sighs) Come back in, like, ten minutes. (laughs) Okay, it's a little bit sus, but whatever. So the question is, how did we get to this point where this dick is elected of all people? Well, before we get to that, I first want to go back to Monday where we left off with Republican Tom Emmer as the most notable candidate. I didn't call him the front runner because I knew then that there was no chance he was going to become speaker, but he was the most notable. And 90 minutes after he was officially nominated by House Republicans as speaker designate, Trump dropped the hammer on him, calling him a globalist rhino and encouraged Republicans to vote against him. So that, in combination with fears from his GOP colleagues that he doesn't hate gay people enough, ultimately led to his quick demise. And as CNN's Christy Wilson points out, he became speaker-designate at 12.16 p.m. on Tuesday, but by 4.26 p.m., he already dropped out. Yeah. So, needless to say, his bid to be speaker ended very quickly, which was pretty predictable. Now, other candidates also quickly started to drop out and a consensus started to quickly form around Johnson, with Ken Buck explaining why he was a good choice to CNN's Dana Bash.
5: Why Mike Johnson? Guessed.
2: You know, uh, probably because Johnson. he has the fewest enemies of anybody John in the Republican Congress. that's
5: a ringing endorsement. Johnson. Well,
2: it's it's the reality of, of where right. we are right now with four vote majority. Um, Mike is one of those Johnson. people who gets along with everybody and he's well respected. Carter and I think those two uh, factors played a big Jeffers. role in this.
1: So it's not necessarily a particular policy or relevant expertise. They chose him because he has the fewest enemies. Cool. Now, the question is, what are the reactions to this from Republicans? I'll tell you my reaction in a moment, but what do Republicans think after battling for weeks? Well, Matt Gates, who started this entire shitstorm, is pretty happy. In fact, he feels vindicated.
0: It is going to be a great moment for the House. And you know what? At the very end, when some people didn't know if they could still even bring back McCarthy, a few of them just left the room and didn't vote. And the swamp is on the run. MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. But they are they are crying. They are hand wringing and bedwetting over on K Street because we have an honorable, righteous, righteous man uh, who is about to take this position. He's going to do great things for the country.
1: So he thinks that Johnson's victory is proof that the MAGA movement is ascended. And I think he's correct. And you'll kind of see why once you see who Mike Johnson is. But what are people like Mike Lawler, who was very critical of Gates, saying about Johnson? Well, here's what he said uh, and what a couple of other Republicans said last night when it became pretty clear that Johnson did have the votes needed to become Speaker.
4: You know, obviously, I did not support the removal of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I, I think it was uh, you know, arguably the stupidest move ever made in politics. Uh, But we have to move forward, and so we're going to rally around uh, Mike Johnson and uh, elect him Speaker tomorrow. Uh, and get back to work it's a different situation
2: now there was a trust factor with leadership last time
3: you guys are going to give him some leeway on that yeah, I, I,
2: was it worth
4: throwing out mccarthy for johnson
2: well look i mean that's uh, that's not actually the question at this point the question here is 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 mike johnson the right guy at the right time and i think he is
1: so you can tell that there's still some bad blood there but they've all found a candidate to settle for him maybe they're not hundred percent happy but they picked him and unanimous consent for this caucus is Pretty surprising, honestly. Now, the likely question on most of your minds is, who the hell is Mike Johnson? And I know that most liberals and leftists who are watching this, probably aren't going to be satisfied with any Republican, don't blame you, but understand that there is a spectrum of Republicans. So in the House, on one end of that spectrum, you have the more moderate economic conservative Republicans who focus disproportionately on tax cuts for corporations and deregulation. And on the other side of that spectrum, you have actual demons who pose a threat to democracy and require human blood for sustenance. Mike Johnson represents all of that, the entire spectrum. He is the worst of the worst. He's essentially an amalgamation of every Republican. The so-called moderates, the fascists, the Austrians, the populists. He is, I think, the worst case scenario or about as close to the worst case scenario as you could get. Much worse than McCarthy and certainly worse than Jim Jordan as well, arguably. And first and foremost, the main thing that you should know is that this man is an election denier.
6: We must vote to sustain objections to states of electors submitted by states that we genuinely believe clearly violated the Constitution and the presidential election of 2020.
1: So that was a snippet of him objecting to Arizona's slate of electors in particular, but make no mistake about it, he went on to vote against certifying the 2020 election. But it gets so much worse because he's not just one of the many Republicans who voted against certifying the election, he actively promoted lies about the 2020 election. Take what he said about Georgia in this radio interview, for example.
2: I was on the floor of the House last night talking with my colleagues from Georgia, and they are so frustrated they want to pull their hair out because They, they feel helpless in the, in the matter, but they know that in Georgia, it really was rigged. It was set up for for the Biden team to win.
1: So he's just straight up denying the results of the 2020 election, but it'd be a mistake to characterize him as just another election denier because he was one of the ringleaders. As he put it in a tweet that he wrote on December 10th of 2020, "Proud to lead over 100 of my colleagues in filing an amicus brief to express our concern with the integrity of the 2020 election and our election system in the future." So he's not just an election denier, he also spread lies about the election, but believe it or not, it gets even worse. Now, let me explain why. So do you all remember the infamous press conference that took place on November 19th of 2020, where Trump attorney Sidney Powell falsely claimed that the software for Dominion voting machines were actually engineered in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez? Well, here's what Mike Johnson said just a couple of days before that press conference took place.
2: And no, in every election in American history, there's some small element of fraud, irregularity, error. We, we just know that. You just accept that that's the case. But when you have it on a broad scale, when you have, you know, a software system that is used all around the country that is suspect because it came from Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, when, when, you, when you have, uh, you know, testimonials of people like this, but, but in large numbers, It, it begs to be litigated and investigated. And the problem is, it's exceedingly difficult to do that in a 45 day, you know, time window. Um, you know, and, and that's the problem that we're up against. And that's why the president is so frustrated. And that's why so many, so many 71, 73 million Americans around the country, uh, feel like that the election was stolen from them.
1: Now, I'm assuming that he laughed after saying that the software came from Venezuela because it was such an idiotic comment to say he couldn't possibly say it with a straight face. But just let that sink in for a moment. One of the most outrageous lies told about the 2020 election was made by him before it was made by Sidney Powell. Sydney Powell, the Trump attorney who pled guilty over her efforts to overturn the 2020 election, whose own attorneys claimed that her election lies were so outrageous that, quote, reasonable people would not take them seriously. But Mike Johnson said that shit first. So the question is, did Sydney Powell get the idea from him? Are there going to be any consequences for him? I mean, she's going to be on probation, but he gets to become speaker. Seems a little bit weird, don't you think? Now the question is, uh, what do Republicans have to say about his election denialism? Well, don't bother asking because this was the response from House Republicans when a reporter tried to ask. Alright then, I guess they're not concerned. Now, the old lady who yelled shut up was actually Congresswoman Virginia Fox who also voted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, but she wasn't the only Republican to hiss at the reporter for daring to ask a very reasonable question because... Right now, the GOP caucus doesn't want to hear any of this. You know, there's election deniers and non-election deniers, but right now, there's a moment of harmony, and they don't want a question about our democracy to get in the way of that. So, you know, they were very outraged at the idea that a reporter would dare ask this question. But it's a pretty important question, don't you think? Now, let's not pretend like the only bad thing about Mike Johnson is his election denialism, because he's seemingly a Christian nationalist with genocidal anti-LGBTQ plus policy positions, and unsurprisingly, he also happens to be a forced brother who's currently co-sponsoring three different pieces of legislation that would ban abortion nationwide, and when a total abortion ban went into effect in his state of Louisiana last year, he celebrated on Twitter and reminded doctors that they could be sentenced up to 10 years of hard labor labor. and given a fine of up to one hundred thousand dollars if they performed an abortion in his state and he recently stated that his forced birth position was necessary to produce more people to help pay for social security he said this listen
6: Roe v Wade gave constitutional cover to the elective killing of unborn children in America period you think about the implications of that on the economy we're all struggling here to, to cover the bases of social security and Medicare and Medicaid and all the rest. If we had all those able-bodied workers in the economy, we wouldn't be going upside down and toppling over like this. Listen. The gentleman I, I will not yield. I will not. Roe was a terrible corruption of America's constitutional jurisprudence.
1: Yeah. Now, on the subject of Social Security, he's also expressed interest in cutting it.
0: Um uh, it's 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 difficult as somebody dedicated to principles of of limited government to see the ballooning out of the deficit and a complete abandonment of entitlement reform. Yeah. Your thoughts? We'll start with Mike and we'll go to Mark.
6: We have to get back to it as a number 1 priority. The CBO says that entitlement spending which they define as Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security interest on the debt, right? Those four obligations we eclipse GDP in what a dozen years or something. I mean, this is not this can can no longer be kicked down the road. You can't wait 8 years to address this. It has to happen yesterday. So um, we, we have to have our hand at the wheel and do this. We are completely derelict in our duty. We're rearranging furniture on the Titanic if we don't get this problem under control.
1: So one way to address it isn't to lift the cap on taxable income. Let's just force women to have more babies. Also, let's cut it. Amazing. But there's more because he also authored the Stop Sexualizing Children Act of 2022, aka the national version of Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, which would censor all LGBTQ plus content in classrooms and even go as far as to designate quote unquote transgenderism as sexually orientated content on par with porn, as Alejandro Caraballo points out, which means that exposing kids 10 and under to quote transgenderism would be banned, which in practice could result in the mass firing of trans teachers, trans pediatricians, trans social workers, and so on. I don't know how this policy would even be enforceable, but trans existence would be classified as inherently sexual under this legislation that he supports. Now, on top of that, during his tenure as an attorney for the ADF, he supported the criminalization of homosexuality and wrote editorials calling it dangerous and claimed that it could lead to pedophilia and also the end of democracy, which is ironic given his lack of support for democracy itself, given that he voted to overturn in the 2020 election, but on top of that, he unsurprisingly is also against same-sex marriage in the year 2023. Oh, and he also thinks that weed is a gateway drug, so he's not very bright. And on top of that, he's a climate denier, and he's skeptical of the COVID vaccines, to put it charitably, and he's just an unhinged lunatic overall who doesn't represent people named Mike very well. As a Mike, I denounce this Mike, and all other Mike should as well. So in the end, I think it was clear that Matt Gates was vindicated. He got what he wanted. He wanted a more conservative speaker than Kevin McCarthy and he got it. But regardless of what you think about him, he is the new speaker now. We're stuck with him. And the saga is officially over. And his first test is coming up in November when the government is set to shut down on the 17th unless it gets more funding. So be on the lookout for that. He's saying that the first order of business is to give money to Israel so they can continue their genocide against Palestinians. So he seems like a really nice guy overall. But I just have to admit that I am a little bit disappointed that this entire debacle is over because I did find the GOP's dysfunction a really nice distraction from all the other terrible things happening in the world right now. But I think that the best case scenario is that he pisses off Republicans in some way in the lead up to the next government shutdown and we get a season two of Speaker Roulette. But I mean, until then, we'll just have to sit back and watch America get fucked by Johnson.
4: How many killings is enough for you? Is it a 1,000 more? 2,000 more? 3,000? How many more Palestinians would make you happy if they die? You, you, will you be fine if all of the people of Gaza were gone? Would that make you happy? Would that be the thing that makes you proud? And maybe that's the question you should ask Richie. Is he okay? How many more Palestinian lives is he comfortable with?
1: You just watched Ilhan Omar condemn her colleague Richie Torres for defending Israel's war crimes. And if you look at this guy's Twitter timeline, it's evident that he doesn't think Israel can ever do wrong, in any circumstance, ever. And that's not really surprising for him, considering the fact that he is paid by the Israel lobby to represent their right-wing government's position on everything. In fact, AIPAC is his number one campaign contributor. But he's not even pretending to care at all about innocent civilians who are now being punished for the crime times of Hamas. He even went as far as to condemn Jewish organizations calling for peace, then subsequently blocked activists who criticized him for it. And if that wasn't despicable enough, he accused critics of his genocidal rhetoric of inciting violence against him. But while he plays the victim, his Muslim colleagues like Ilhan Omar is seeing a spike in death threats with threatening voicemails calling her a terrorist Muslim, and the reason why this is happening, the reason why his Muslim colleagues are getting these calls, getting these voicemails, where they're being called terrorists is because people like him suggest that anyone who doesn't unequivocally support Israel must be sympathetic to the Hamas terrorists. But according to him, he's the real victim, not Ilhan Omar, who's getting death threats currently. But he responded to Ilhan Omar's criticism, and he decided to smear her even more.
4: And maybe that's the question you should ask Richie. Is he okay? How many more Palestinian lives is he comfortable with?
7: What's your response?
1: Uh, I mean, I obviously resent those comments. You know, every casualty is a tragedy. Uh, Every war is a humanitarian crisis. But we have to keep in mind the causes of the war. Israel did not start the war. The war was imposed upon Israel by the barbaric terrorism of Hamas, which butchered 1,400 Israelis, including babies. You know, my colleague, Representative Omar, you know, has voted against uh, Iron Dome, which is a missile defense system that protects Israeli civilians from relentless rocket fire. Were it not for Iron Dome interceptions. There would be far more dead Israelis, far more by orders of magnitude. And so the policy positions that she has taken would have led to even more dead Israelis and more dead Palestinians. That is a despicable lie to spread about his colleague that is currently facing death threats. Ilhan Omar did not vote against the Iron Dome. It existed before she was a member of Congress. What she and a handful of progressives voted against was further funding for Israel's Iron Dome, and they explained why they voted this way. Rashida Tlaib, for example, who joined Omar in opposing it, stated that she opposed it because giving them money would enable support for Israel's war crimes and human rights abuses committed against the Palestinian people. And she added that the safety of Palestinians should also be considered, considering the fact that they are literally living under a brutal system of apartheid imposed on them by Israel. But he makes it seem as if they voted specifically against the Iron Dome itself because they don't want Israel to have one, therefore they must want Israel to be defenseless, i.e. they must support terrorism effectively. He knows that that's dishonest, and it's especially an egregious lie to spread when they're receiving death threats, specifically because the people calling them think that they are terrorist Muslims. So, it's despicable, and he knows what he's doing, but Richie Torres is completely shameless. Now, he is the one member of Congress who represents the poorest district in the country, but yet he wants to give money to Israel that his constituents need, when Israel— doesn't need that money. Israel's military is doing just fine. They can already defend themselves. And furthermore, if Israel is able to afford free universal health care for all of its citizens, but we somehow can't, why should our tax dollars go to them? It just doesn't make sense. And if anyone should get funding for an Iron Dome, shouldn't it be Gazans or Palestinians in the West Bank? An Israeli airstrike on the Al Al-Anzar Mosque in the West Bank, mind you, not in Gaza, killed two and injured three. Where's the calls for their Iron Dome? We're not talking about funding for their Iron Dome. They just don't have one, period. Why is there no concern for them? Again, He doesn't care about Palestinians, so he's never going to ask this question. He makes no mention of Israeli war crimes ever, such as collective punishment and their use of white phosphorus. But when he's accused of supporting a genocide, he turns around and he plays the victim, as his colleagues are getting death threats. It's just so despicable. And he is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus for some reason. I mean, I don't know why he's there when he should join the Freedom Caucus. He'd fit right in since, like him, they support a far-right fascist demagogue. The difference is he's smart enough to realize the danger that ultra-nationalist politics pose at home, but somehow can't understand why it's also dangerous in Israel. But Richie Torres isn't the only Democrat who is indifferent to Palestinian suffering at best. In fact, most Democratic politicians are right in line with what he's saying, but they don't try to make it seem as if they're progressive. The difference is Richie Torres purports to be a progressive and is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. But there's also so-called progressive in the Senate, John Fetterman, who tweeted out support for bloodshed on Twitter last week, writing, Now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. We must support Israel in efforts to eliminate the Hamas terrorists who slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. Hamas does not want peace. They want to destroy Israel. We can talk about a ceasefire after Hamas is neutralized. Now, many people rightfully pointed out myself in That in the name of eliminating Hamas, Israel has been indiscriminately slaughtering innocent civilians who had nothing to do with the Hamas attack. 50% of Gazans are children who did not attack Israel, who has nothing to do with Hamas, who can't release the hostages because they're not the ones who took those hostages captive. So not supporting a ceasefire means that you are okay with innocent civilians, many of which are children, dying. And at this point in time, Israel has killed, tripled the amount that Hamas has killed in that attack on October 7th. This violence is not going to stop Hamas. They've tried this before and it hasn't. So just indiscriminately killing civilians is not the, not the answer, which is why people are calling for a ceasefire. But John Fetterman says, nope, now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. Now, his reprehensible comment there was met with fierce pushback, and that's because people are starting to wake up. A ceasefire is the bare minimum supported by 66% of Americans, according to a Data for Progress poll, and that includes 80% of Democrats. But yet he had the audacity to say that now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire when 80% of Democrats rightfully think this is what should happen right now, because, again, indiscriminate bombing of civilians is not going to eradicate Hamas. You're just punishing people, namely children, who had nothing to do with the disgusting October 7th attacks. Now, he was asked about the backlash that he received in in an interview with Pod Save America, and, um, his response here was just straight up incoherent. It was a non-answer, but let's listen.
0: You called out some of your uh, progressive colleagues this week for, for blaming the Gaza hospital explosion on Israel. And you said in a statement, quote, we can talk about a ceasefire after Hamas is neutralized. So what do you say to people, um, you say to people, including uh, you know a lot of Israelis who absolutely agree that Hamas needs to be neutralized, mm-hmm. but are worried that a massive ground invasion of Gaza could lead to tens of thousands of more civilian casualties a bigger war in the Middle East and ultimately potentially a less secure Israel.
3: No, it's 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 terrible. It's an awful situation. I absolutely as well too.
0: And you know, I you know,
3: value the you know the, my children. I have three children. The lives of my children, with a Israeli child or a Palestinian child, and, and all that. I mean, nobody nobody wants you know civilians. We have to make sure uh, of the the welfare of the, the civilians. But but you know, it's to remember that Hamas doesn't want peace. He doesn't want to be negotiated with. Or I mean, and you know, they massacred you know you know innocent children women and now they have over 200 hostages with them right now as well too so um, I, I really believe that I'm always going to decide to stand on the side of Israel you know in this place and 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 also after the the hospital tragedy uh, now everyone now we know that it was it was the police you know, it was guess, uh, Islamic Jihad, and they tried to blame it on Israel. On top of that, as well, too, compounding that, and I was disappointed by a lot of the out, uh, the media outlets that now kind of pushed that narrative coming out immediately, saying, "Well, well, Hamas says that it was it was an Israeli uh, rocket," which we all now agree that it's that wasn't the case.
1: Notice how there wasn't many claps when he said that he's going to always support Israel. And that's because Democrats know that unequivocally supporting any government, including our own government, isn't a very wise thing to do because the world isn't black and white, right? Governments can do wrong and oftentimes they do do wrong. And especially when this government has been using white phosphorus, has engaged in collective punishment, which is a war crime, saying that you unequivocally will always support them right now just isn't a very good look. That's why you didn't get applause from Democrats in that audience. Now, he says that, you know, he's mad that Rashida Talib jumped to conclusions when it comes to the hospital attack. Now, we still don't know definitively who is responsible for that hospital attack, contrary to popular belief. Now, we don't know. It's okay to say that we don't know. But I don't think that it's insane to think that Israel is lying, considering the fact that they lie all the time. They lied about killing journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. So, it's not outrageous to think, oh my god, people think that Israel is lying as they're bombing Gaza. It's just, it's ridiculous to me that he's that outraged about people's skepticism here when it's warranted. Now, second of all, he said that Hamas, or should I say Hamas as he called them, doesn't want peace. Now, that's true, but the Israeli government also does not want peace, hence why they funded Hamas. And furthermore, if Hamas all of a sudden just started advocating for peace. That wouldn't matter because they're not the ones who are doing an occupation. There is a power imbalance here. Israel has all the power and they and they alone can end the occupation, which which will facilitate peace. But they're not doing that. So you can acknowledge the role that Hamas plays here, but to just pretend like Israel has no culpability in this entire situation whatsoever. I mean, it's not like this conflict started on October 7th. The occupation has been going on for decades, but he just pretends as if that's not the case. Just strips the nuance and context away from the entire situation. Yes, the crime that Hamas committed is bad. However, you can't just pretend as if that happened in a vacuum. There's going to be radicalization when you have a group of people who are subjected to the largest open air prison. That's not justifying what Hamas did, but it's important to know this so we can understand why this is happening. Because if we don't know why this is happening, how are we going to be able to stop it? Now, when he said he defends Israel and will always defend Israel, he didn't make no mention of their war crimes or the occupation. And the reason why he's lying by omission here is because he is terrified of the pro-Israel lobby, right? So I can't say that he's funded by APAC like Richie Torres, but I do know that he is scared shitless of them. And we know this because during his campaign, he basically allowed Democratic Majority for Israel to edit his campaign messaging so that way they wouldn't fund his Democratic opponents in the primary. Ryan Grimm of The Intercept explains, Mark Melman, this is the head of the Democratic Majority for Israel, had reached out to Fetterman with questions about his position on Israel. Quote, he's never come out and said that he's not a supporter of Israel, but the perception is that he aligns with the squad more than anything else, Democratic activist Brett Goldman told Jewish Insider. Melman said the campaign responded to his inquiry and came with an interest in learning about the issues. Following the meeting, the Fetterman campaign breached back out. Then they sent us a position paper, which we thought was very strong, Millman said, but it wasn't quite strong enough. Jewish Insider reported that DMFI emailed back some comments on the paper, which Fetterman was receptive to addressing in a second draft. In April, Fetterman agreed to do an interview with Jewish Insider. Quote, I want to go out of my way to make sure that it's absolutely clear that the views that I hold in no way go along the lines of some of the more fringe or extreme wings of our party, he said. I would also respectfully say that I'm not really a progressive in that sense." Yeah, no shit. Fetterman unprompted stressed there should be zero conditions on military aid to Israel, that BDS is wrong, and so on. Let me just say this, even if I'm asked or not. I was dismayed by the Iron Dome vote, Fetterman added. DMFI and Apex stayed out of the race. Yeah. So you can see why he said what he said. He didn't want pro-Israel interest groups spending against him. He was even against BDS, a peaceful movement to get Israel to end apartheid. So we've got politicians who unequivocally support Israel because they're either cowards like John Fetterman or they're corrupt, which is the case with Richie Torres. But whatever the reason may be for so-called progressive politicians supporting Israel's far-right government – It's not acceptable. Amnesty International has released multiple articles calling out damning evidence of war crimes by the Israeli government, also demanding an end to the blockade and asking them to end the evacuation order. But they're not biased. They've also condemned Hamas's attack on innocent Israeli civilians as well, rightfully so, because they care about human rights. Now, if you've been following this story for a while, you'll notice a bit of a pattern. So if you condemn Israeli war crimes, you'll be asked why you haven't condemned Hamas. But once you point out that you've already condemned Hamas, you'll then be called anti-Semitic for not supporting Israel's right to defend itself. And this is basically the go-to playbook, we've been seeing it for decades, but this is a very dangerous game to play by supporters of Israel. Condemning the war crimes of Israel's far-right fascist government does not make you anti-Semitic in the same way that condemning Saudi Arabia's war crimes doesn't make you Islamophobic. Now, the same people who justify Israel's war crimes by conflating all Palestinians with Hamas also tend to conflate all Jewish people with the government of Israel. So that way, if you don't support the government of Israel, that is tantamount to you not supporting the Jewish people. Therefore, if you oppose the actions of the Israeli government, you also, by default, oppose Jewish people in general. And that is so harmful because it makes both communities unsafe. Conflating the actions of a government or a representative body with the actions of people, It makes these communities unsafe because it rationalizes hatred against them for actions that they're not responsible for. And we've already seen the ramifications of this rhetoric. The president of a Detroit synagogue was stabbed to death inside of her home a week after a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death by his landlord. And this is what happens when politicians reinforce the narrative that you are a terrorist sympathizer, for example, if you're opposed to the Israeli government's war crimes or if they pretend like Jewish peace organizations. Organizations leading calls for a ceasefire aren't actually representative of the Jewish people because they would never be this disloyal to Israel or something like that. Seems like I've heard that somewhere before. It's gross. But politicians like Richie Torres and John Fetterman, they have to lie. They have to obfuscate. And also, it's not just outright lies. It's lies by omission as well in order to defend what is indefensible to most people. Most people realize that what Israel is doing is wrong, hence why thousands around the world over the weekend took to the streets to call for a ceasefire in support of palestinian people who had nothing to do with the crimes of hamas but make no mistake about it if you support a far-right regime that is currently doing war crimes and overseeing an apartheid you are not a progressive full stop progressives don't sympathize with fascist governments in the same way it would be absurd for any progressive to support victor orban in hungary or narendra modi in india or jair bolsonaro in brazil or javier malay in argentina it's absurd to uncritically support Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. So if you support a fascist demagogue, you are not a progressive. So you can pretend to be a progressive and claim to be a progressive, but what you're doing right here is exposing you. So any progressive who says that they uncritically support Israel as they do a genocide in Gaza, they're not a progressive. And when people tell you who they are, you should believe them.
4: I've had it with the Palestinians. I've given up on the Palestinians. If I was in Israel, I wouldn't be talking about a Palestinian state right now. I don't think Joe Biden should be talking about a Palestinian state right now. And I don't like how people tried to differentiate between the Palestinians and Hamas. To me, I see people with guns. That's Hamas. The people without the guns are the Palestinians. They believe the same thing. The Palestinians hire Hamas to run their government. You poll them, they all love killing Jews. It's in their charter. They say they believe in suicide bombings. Every time a Palestinian refugee goes to another country, it doesn't work out so well for the other country and for those Palestinians. No one wants them. You don't see Egypt opening up their doors. You don't see Jordan opening up. You don't see the Saudis. Why don't they want the Palestinians, Dana?
1: You just got a small taste of the far-rights dehumanizing rhetoric towards Palestinians, where they not only push this idea that Palestinian civilians are indistinguishable from Hamas, but they also argue that Palestinians are literally less human than everyone else on the planet. But this racist, Islamophobic caricature of Palestinians is nothing new. In 2010, Ben Shapiro famously tweeted, Israelis like to build... Arabs like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. This is not a difficult issue, hashtag settlements rock. And during Israel's 2014 incursion into Gaza, anti-woke author who couldn't define woke Bethany Mandel tweeted the following, Not nuking these fucking animals is the only restraint I expect, and that's only because the cloud would hurt Israelis. Now, In response to that tweet resurfacing, she said, It was sent in the heat of the moment after another brutal attack. But I had a point. So, unsurprisingly, the far right in America is in lockstep with the far right in Israel, who also referred to Palestinians as human animals and claimed that civilians in Gaza are also responsible for the crimes of Hamas. So if this kind of dehumanizing rhetoric towards Palestinians is that common on the right, Well, it's no surprise that Republican politicians aren't just echoing the same thing, but they're taking things much further by proposing draconian policies to go along with said dehumanizing rhetoric. In fact, Republican presidential candidates are vowing to censor and punish protesters who dare defend Palestinian civilians. And their primary targets will first and foremost be foreign students on college campuses. The Washington Post reports, Trump, the dominant polling leader in the GOP race, said this week that if he is returned to the White House, his administration would revoke student visas of, quote, radical anti-American and anti-Semitic foreigners. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also expressed support for deporting international students who he deemed supportive of Hamas, saying, you don't have a right to be here on a visa. You don't have a right to be studying in the United States. In a radio interview the same day, Senator Tim Scott said of the student protests, if any of those students on college." campuses are foreign nationals on a visa they should be sent back to their country and additionally ronda santis has ordered students at the university of florida and the university of south florida to deactivate their students for justice in palestine groups because they supposedly violate laws in florida against anti-semitism now regardless if these students are american citizens or not they still have first amendment protections from our constitution they still apply But yet these self-proclaimed pro-free speech candidates are openly vowing to violate the constitution in order to punish critics of israel but when washington post reporter dylan wells reached out to all of the campaigns of these republicans proposing this and asked them how do you reconcile this position with your supposed support for free speech well guess what she got no response predictable Now, by introducing these plans, American fascists are following in the footsteps of fascist leaders in Israel, who are also punishing critics of the Israeli government. The Nation reports that Palestinians and Jews in Israel are being punished over their criticisms of Israel on social media. They explain that about 50 Palestinians have either faced disciplinary action or faced suspension from various Israeli academic institutions, also about 30 Palestinian civilians of Israel have been fired from their jobs, and 170 have been detained or questioned for allegedly making social media posts in support of Hamas. And this crackdown comes after a Haaretz report about a Likud minister drafting emergency regulations to jail citizens who, quote, harm national morale. How democratic of Israel. Now, to be clear, the justification for punishment and censorship is that these people are accused of supporting Hamas. But understand that any criticism of the Israeli government is deemed pro-Hamas. The goal is to silence all critics of Israel Israel's war crimes in Gaza, period, full stop. And the easiest way to justify it and cultivate public support for this censorship campaign is to just say, well, they sympathize with terrorists. We're seeing a version of that here in the United States as well, where people who speak out on the behalf of Palestinian civilians like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are being referred to as terrorist sympathizers. It's the oldest trick in the book. Now, thankfully, censorship over social media posts hasn't gone that bad yet here in the United States, but social media companies are being accused of suppressing Palestinian voices. Meta, for example, is being accused of suppressing information on Instagram and popular pro-Palestine accounts on Twitter like Palestine Action is alleging that they're being suppressed as well. And as someone who followed them and then had to re-follow after I was automatically unfollowed, I do think that there is some merit to their claims if it's not just a bug or a glitch, but I think that Elon Musk probably is responsible for censorship here. He's been censoring voices that he disagreed with before, so. Who's to say that he's not doing it again? But don't assume that widespread censorship isn't occurring here in the United States because it's not as prevalent as it is in Israel, because it is happening and it has been happening. Journalists like Katie Halper, Mark Lamont Hill, Nathan J. Robinson, they've all been fired from The Hill, CNN, and The Guardian, respectively, for being critical of Israel. And furthermore, within the last 10 years, anti-BDS laws in the United States have exploded with 38 states adopting anti-BDS laws, as you could see by this chart here. Now, here's what this means. Quote, states with anti-boycott laws are effectively telling companies that if you do the right thing and disentangle yourselves from settlement abuses, you can't do business with us, said Andrea Prasso, Deputy U.S. Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. Quote, states should encourage not sanction companies that avoid contributing to human rights abuses. Many states have anti-boycott laws or policies that extend to individuals and companies that enter into business contracts with states these laws and policies require people entering into contracts to assert that they will not engage in any boycott activity so in the united states of america you could be punished for speaking up and condemning a foreign government but sometimes even if you keep your mouth shut it's what you don't do that can get you into trouble you're sometimes punished for not signing a loyalty pledge to israel In America. This happened to a Texas teacher who was fired for refusing to sign an anti BDS loyalty pledge to Israel. And the same exact thing happened to Abby Martin, as she explained in this video from November of 2020.
7: In February of this year, I was supposed to give a keynote speech at Georgia Southern University. Before the event, I refused to sign a state mandated pledge to not boycott Israel in order to speak. My invitation was rescinded and the conference canceled as a result. I decided to sue the state of Georgia because signing an anti-BDS clause in order to work in the state is a direct violation of my constitutional rights to free speech and to participate in political boycotts. Just days after this lawsuit was filed and widely reported in the press, Netanyahu tweeted this. He said, whoever boycotts us will be boycotted. In recent years, we've promoted laws in most U.S. states which determine that strong action is to be taken against whoever tries to boycott Israel. So here you have a foreign country essentially threatening economic consequences to dictate the constitutional rights of Americans. Then you had Georgia state officials essentially um, citing, I mean, actually citing Israel Netanyahu as part of their defense for these laws. I mean, this is a free speech case under the U.S. Constitution, so why is it that you have a foreign leader, you know, making veiled threats for economic consequences, um, and then you have actual state officials in Georgia citing foreign officials as their reason to undermine the U.S. Constitution here?
5: It's remarkable and fundamentally distressing that you have elected officials in the United States who actually are willing to sacrifice Americans' First Amendment rights, cherished First Amendment rights, at the request of a foreign country. And it's demanding, basically, that you and anyone else sign a loyalty oath to a foreign country in order to be able to contract with the state of Georgia. And the situation uh, is so extreme that, in fact, one of the state legislatures, Deborah Silcox, when they were seeking to amend the law and raise that limit to $100,000 to try and moot your case, um, actually said in a committee meeting at the state legislature that she had been asked to take that step by the Israeli consulate and apparently even brought a member of the Israeli consulate to speak in that meeting. This is the United States. This is where you know we're told over and over again that You know, it's American rights that we have the First Amendment, that we have the Constitution, that we have the Bill of Rights, that this stands for American freedom. And then they can just quickly turn around and say, well, another country directed that we take these actions. And so we're going to do that.
1: Absolutely chilling. Now, thankfully, Abby Martin ended up winning her lawsuit. And I will link you to the video down below where I talked about the outcome of that case. But just for a second, imagine that your employer fired you because they demanded that you sign a loyalty pledge to russia or saudi arabia or china and you didn't i mean politicians would quickly condemn that the media would condemn that but we have a far-right israeli government literally dictating the free speech rights of united states citizens and um it's just a common phenomenon here it's not even controversial and as you've seen we don't want israel to dictate free speech rights in the United States because they're pretty fucking bad at protecting free speech in their country. They're penalizing people who criticize them. But furthermore, just having a foreign government dictate U.S. policy at all is a bit of a slippery slope. No, it's a bit frightening, is it not? Now, obviously, these anti-BDS laws are in violation of the First Amendment, which is why Abby Martin won her lawsuit, and why multiple anti-BDS laws have been blocked by federal courts multiple times, but it's not always a sure bet given the politicized nature of our judiciary, and an anti-BDS law in Arkansas was actually upheld by a U.S. appeals court in 2022. But understand that this attack on free speech at the behest of Israel is not unique to the United States. France literally banned all Palestinian protests. France, democratic country controlled by a liberal government, banned all pro-Palestinian protests and as Amnesty International points out, Germany has banned pro-Palestine protests in most cities. Switzerland also banned protests in certain cities and waving the Palestinian flag may soon be illegal in the UK as well. Now, at the start of this video I pointed out the Republicans who support a draconian crackdown of free speech at the behest of the Israeli government. And that's not surprising considering the far right in the U.S., has authoritarian ambitions, just like the far-right does in Israel. In fact, Netanyahu's judicial overhaul has been characterized as a coup because it would spawn a constitutional crisis. And also, Donald Trump, here in the United States, was accused of doing a coup as well, or at least attempting a coup, by trying to illegally stay in power after he lost the election. But what's interesting is that liberals in the U.S. can clearly acknowledge the threat posed by Donald Trump's far-right, ultranationalist, fascist policies— But when it comes to Israel's version of Donald Trump, Netanyahu, and their far-right ultra-nationalist government, liberals seem to have a blind spot. They can't see how Netanyahu, like Trump, also poses a danger to democracy, not just democracy in Israel, our democracy too, because they are literally pushing for policies to censor United States citizens. Benjamin Netanyahu admitted this, and those anti-BDS laws that I mentioned— guess who supports those? It's not just Republicans like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott. These anti-BDS laws have widespread bipartisan support. It's not just Republicans who support them. Perhaps Republicans support the most draconian crackdowns on free speech, but Democrats aren't opposing what Republicans are saying here. So if you're disgusted by the censorious proposals from republican presidential candidates don't be surprised if democrats come out and support them too or propose their own versions that maybe are a little bit tamer and the reason why so many u.s politicians are choosing to go along with the far-right government of israel even if they're liberal is because i mean well there's multiple reasons first of all propaganda uh second of all there is the Israel lobby. There's a lot of foreign governments that spend millions of dollars lobbying U.S. politicians. And Israel is in the top 10, one of the biggest spenders to influence U.S. policy. And a lot of them, if they speak out, even if they don't take APAC money, for example, there could be a primary challenge to them. So they're afraid, which makes them complicit. But I mean, if you're a liberal who is on the same side as people like Ben Shapiro, And Jesse Waters, who has bought into the total dehumanization of Palestinian people to the point where you are agreeing with Republicans that censorship of American citizens who criticize Israel is good? I don't know, maybe a little bit of introspection is needed.
0: Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. you get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our
1: content on social media.